have a Bible, open it up to John chapter 5. We will begin reading in verse 19 here in just a moment. Last week we spoke about the importance uh, and the nature of the Sabbath. Um, That discussion ended with Jesus claiming that he works now just as his father has always been working. The Jews, in verse 18, rightly understood that Jesus was claiming to be equal with the father and therefore they hated him and they sought all the more to kill him. Now, given that we're moving off of that, we might be expected for Jesus to do what so many people today do and make these outlandish statements and then slowly back them down. I went looking for sort of new age beliefs to share with you. Um, And so this was the first Google result that came back to me, which I often like to do because I don't know. I don't know why I like to do it, but I do it. So this was by a lady named Beth Green. She wrote this for Huffington Post um, talking about her divinity. She said, the very first sentence is, I live at the intersection between the human and the divine, and I love them both. Later on, she says this, and this is actually the subheading of her post. There is no chasm between us and God, and I am willing to say so. I don't know if she says it with that much flourish, but nevertheless, I am willing to say so. I claim my place at the intersection of what we call human and what we call divine, and I call upon us all to explode the myth of their separateness. That is indeed quite a claim. One probably needs to understand what she's claiming there, though, because to our ears, when you claim that you live at the intersection of humanity and divinity, you would claim something of God in you, and more than that, you would claim that this is kind of the role that Jesus takes, so we would assume that you could do miracles, you could do all kinds of fun stuff, like you would be the life of a party, and so we would expect for her to be like that. But what she does, she takes a statement like that, and then she immediately backs it down so that divinity becomes nothing more than spirituality. And that spirituality becomes nothing more than just being a kind person. So this is what she goes on and says. This divinity is then spirituality. She says this, quote, Spirituality also allows us access to the magic, magic, um, not sleight of hand, there's something different, magic that results automatically from our connection with the divine, the magic of teaching, healing, and reconciliation. Some of us are more aware of our magic, As an intuitive, for example, I am daily amazed at what I can do when I allow my inner guidance to direct my work. But many of us are unaware of our magic, although we express it through music or art, through our ability to bring peace or comfort to the suffering, whether human, plant, or animal, or through a special understanding of children or a gift at sowing or gardening. I don't know what you make of sowing or gardening, but to think that that is a divine quality in any way, shape, or form is probably a stretch too far, right? So she claims that she lives at the intersectionality of humanity and divinity, but then divinity sounds like what my mother-in-law does when she goes in and she sews little baseballs on a pillowcase for my son. That is not divinity. That is simply being a kind person? I don't know. She's probably a very nice person, but that's not divinity. She immediately says something outlandish and then just backs that thing down. So it sounds like she's just a regular human being. Listen, Jesus here, as we come into these verses, is not about to back off of the claim. It's ironic, actually, that the Jews have actually understood what he meant by this. When he says, I am working, my father has been working until now, and, and I also work. They actually do understand him. Throughout the Gospel of John, they continually misunderstand what Jesus means. He says something, it goes over their heads, or they they miss the point entirely, but here they get the point. 
But there's still room for misunderstanding. Although they understand well what Jesus implies, he could mean a couple of things by saying that he is equal with God, or at least implying that he is equal with God. Maybe he is equal with God, the Son is, but somehow he's separate from God. And so he, he's like two apples. Those apples are, are the same. They, they both can look beautiful and they can taste exactly the same, but they're two distinct apples. You can eat one without eating the other one. You can have one and not have the other one. And so perhaps when he says we're equal, he means we are both separate but equal. We are distinct but equal. We are in some way, shape, or form a God alongside another God. So there is God the Father, and then there is God the Son, and they are two separate beings, but they are still God. Or perhaps when he says this, he simply means that he is the Father just in a different role. So the Father used to be in the Old Testament up high, reigning over all things, but now he has come in the Son, and so as the Father has worked up till now, I am working. So the Father worked up into the incarnation and now the Father works as a son and, and the name changes just because God was up high as a father but now he's come down as a son. Well, there are a number of ways to mistake this. Jesus doesn't want us to mistake it in any way and so he wants to clarify exactly what it means for him to be the son of God and exactly what that means for him to be equal to the Father. Before we, we begin to look at this, I do want to say one more thing about this. Many of you are in here thinking, listen, this is this is difficult. It is hard to understand. I'm neither a theologian nor a philosopher, and I didn't get born from one of them, and so I, I don't know exactly why this matters. Why does it matter if we are so clear with how the Son is equal to the Father? Why does it matter so much that we have these things put before us? Well, the, one of the simple answers is I, I need to preach it because it's the next verse, so that's kind of the way we work here. So there's, there's an importance there because God has revealed it this way. And so we, we tend to think that those things are important. God has revealed this to us and so we ought to know it. But the other thing is, in all honesty, to understand the nature of God is at least, at the very least, something of a sign of your love for him. Listen, there isn't a person in here who has known me for a very long time who doesn't hear at some point in time of my distaste for devil's fruit, otherwise known as peaches, right? They are gross and they're disgusting and they are evil through and through. You get down to the bottom and there's a pit of evil and it's surrounded by flesh of evil and it's, it's bad. It doesn't mean you can it. You can get rid of the fur. It doesn't matter. It's all like, you should know better. It's furry. Stay away, right? But no, you people go ahead and eat it anyways. You know I just like peaches. If my wife didn't know I disliked peaches, she would have to be ignorant of so much of who I am. She would have to willingly not listen to me. She would have to have an ignorance about me that verges not just on disdain, but hatred. And I mean that. She would, I say it so often, and we make jokes about it so often, that if my wife turned to me in four years and said, you, you don't like peaches? Have you listened to me, right? It would be an obvious sign that she doesn't care for me. When you are in a relationship, and I, I really dislike the statement also that this is a related part of a relationship. It's not about religion. It's, it's about religion. But you're in a relationship with the Lord, right? If you are in a relationship with the Lord, one of the signs that you love the Lord is you grow in the knowledge of who the Lord is. How, how can you grow closer to somebody but not know who they are? especially not know who they are when they tell you who they are, when they speak it continuously. If Jesus has called us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we have to deal with this stuff. 
And friend, it might be difficult to understand. It might be difficult to track with, but it is good for your soul and it is good for your heart to do so. So let us read John 5, 19 through 24 as we think through what it means for the son to be equal with the father. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of our God. How can we see the equality of the Son and the Father? We see it first in the essence of the Son. See it first in the essence of the Son. Verses 19 through 20, the first part of verse 20, show us something of the essence of the Son. And we hit a problem right from the start. The problem is that this relationship is unlike any other relationship that we would ever know of. It is, to put probably the best word to it we could, it is ineffable. It's impossible to talk about. We, we lack verbs, nouns, prepositions. We lack forms of language that can accurately describe what is actually happening in the Godhead at any one point in time. All of our language is piecemealed, put together in order to, to help us understand, to give us analogies and metaphors of it. And so when we come to this, we keep hearing verbs that imply stuff that they shouldn't uh, imply, okay? So when he says continuously that the Father shows or the Father gives or Jesus the Son sees, we immediately have this sort of temporal connection in our head. To be given something means that you didn't have it before and that it's given to you. To see something means you're seeing it in time. And this is because we are limited by time ourselves. But these are just ways of speaking. We should not think that these verbs indicate something of time, but they indicate something of direction. Everything flows from the Father to the Son. The Father is the one who gives and the one who shows, while the Son is the one who sees and receives. It is unidirectional. It never goes backwards. It never goes backwards. So when you hear these verbs, realize that what John is trying to say and what the Bible is continually saying is that it's always the son, to use Augustine's language, of the father. He is always of the father. The, the father shows him and tells him and gives to him all things. But that doesn't imply time. So what does Jesus say first? The first thing we get out of these verses is that the son is clearly not independent. He's not independent. He, he does only what the Father shows him. He says this, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He says, I, I can't do anything on my own. It's not as though Jesus the Son is God, and therefore, because he's God, he does whatever he wills. He says, I can't do it on my own. If I don't see my Father doing it, I can't do it. And what you shouldn't hear that as is, I choose to only do the things my Father shows me because that's not really what it means. It means he can only do the things that his father shows him. 
He is linked to the Father directly. He cannot do anything outside of what the Father shows him. He is not independent in any way, shape, or form. He is a distinct person, which we will get to, but he is not independent from God. So he's not like those apples that sit side by side. He cannot be because he only does what the Father shows him. But, but he does everything the Father shows him. Listen to what he says. So he says, I'm not independent. I cannot do anything of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, anything that the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So his divinity, his power, is that he can do anything that the Father does. Now you might think, okay, well, fair enough, but maybe the Father doesn't show him all that he's doing. Maybe the Father's got little tricks on the side and he doesn't actually let him know all of these things. Then Jesus turns around and he says, but that can't be the case either because the Father loves the Son. It is God the Father's eternal love for his Son that he displays himself in his full glory to his Son always and forevermore. So he always shows the Son everything that he is doing. It is full and unbridled communication with the Son. He always tells the Son. He always shows the Son. He always gives the Son. And because of that, it's clear that anything that the Father does, the Son can do. And anything the Father does, the Son does likewise. Theologians throughout the ages have called this, well, they've, it doesn't matter what they've called it, we'll move on. They, it is the inseparable operations. So anything that the Son does, the Father has done. Anything the Father does, the Son does. They don't work separately from one another. If the Father does it, he shows the Son, and then the Son does likewise. Thus, the Son cannot, at any point in time, be a distinct God. He only does what the Father does. But he is certainly all that the Father is. He has to be all that the Father is. What makes God God? What makes God God are the works that he does. He is the creator of all things. He is the redeemer of his people. He is the one who is the giver of life, the author of life. If he has done these things, he shows the Son these things, and the Son does them likewise. Not sequentially, but at the same time. To do such, to be able to do everything that the Father does, means that he is of the same essence. That their nature is the same. He's not a third God. He's not a separate God. But they share exactly the same essence. God the Son is all God. God the Father is all God. They don't share part of it. They're not a copy of one another. They are the same in essence. But again, to go back to the kind of words that are being used, why sight? Why talk about gift and why talk about giving? Why use the same kind of language time and time again? We've used and we've heard of, in our society, the sort of plague of fatherlessness, that if you go into inner cities or you go to places, there are a number of, of places where there is a huge population, especially of young men, who are growing up without a father. And this is a plague on our country. And it's not a plague on our country because those people are bad. It's a plague on our country because those boys don't know what it means to be a man. Part of what it means to grow up around a father is to have your life pictured before you. You might not want to turn into your father, but you're going to. So, at some shape or form, you're going to. What, what I do when I am a father is I model for my son what it means to be a man. Whether I want to do that or not, that's what happens. So I model for my son what it means to be a loving husband by the way I love my wife. I model for my son what it means to be a loving father by the way I love him and his sisters. He watches 
how I work. He watches how I rest. He watches how I speak. All these things he will pattern in his life after me, even if he does them better than I do. Even if he changes the way he acts because of what he saw in me, those patterns are still laid down. Now, when you apply this to the Trinity, it breaks down incredibly quickly, but it does not break down completely. This is at least part of what it means for the Son to be the Son of the Father. He watches what the Father does, and he does likewise. Listen, the Father didn't just take Jesus aside before he came down, take the Son aside and say, okay, Son, there's some things I need to show you because you're going to have to do these when you get down there. So this is how you walk on water, okay? So you walk on water, you just got to move your feet real quick, okay? Secondly, I've got this really cool trick with the multiplying of bread. Here's the, here's the, the way you do that, okay? And if you get stuck, just pray to me. I'll help, right? He doesn't, it's not, that's not how it works. He does these things because he and the father work together at them, Okay? The father always gives to his son models for his son how to act and how to work. It's not temporal, but it is going from the father to the son. The father gives, the father shows, the son receives, and the son acts, not in time, but through an always and ever intimate love. He can do all things the father does because the son is equal in essence to the father. But secondly, we can see the equality of the Father and the Son because of the employment of the Son. The employment of the Son. You might ask, why does God act this way? Isn't this more complicated than it needs to be? It seems like it. Because why didn't God, in his unitary essence, just come down and be with us? Why why keep a unitary essence but then distinct persons so that the Son comes down but not the Father? It, wouldn't it be so much more simple to have this strict monotheism that we find in either Judaism or we find in Muslim beliefs? Wouldn't that be easier for us? Well, yes, it would be easier, but it would also be wrong because that's not how God is. Why does he continually send the Son the answer to that is because the Son is the only way, the only way the Father can make himself known. The Father cannot disclose himself outside of the Son. So again, back in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When he talks about no one has seen him, he doesn't mean that you can now see him. When he talks later in John about Philip, you ask me to show you the Father. I've been with you all this time. When you see me, you see the Father. He doesn't mean that like he's got two heads, right? He d you don't see the Father when you see him. What he means is you don't know him. You don't understand him. No one knows the Father. No one understands the Father. No, his ways are mysterious to everyone except when the Son comes to display him, to reveal him. The employment of the Son is always to reveal the Father. So, give you an illustration of this. We'll go back to the 70s and we will play the dating game, okay? So there's one lady on the side and she's looking for a date and there are three guys on the other side of a divider. And the only way that she's going to learn anything from those three guys, she can't see them, all she can do is talk to them. So she's going to ask them questions. This is the best way to get dates. These dates are guaranteed to be awesome. Not making eye contact with me? Okay, so that, that's not, not true. Um, you won't do that. So, uh, instead of talking to them, she could just, they could just talk to their fathers and their fathers would tell them these are not good men to date. But nevertheless, that's the only way that she's going to learn anything from the men is to hear them talk. They have to reveal themselves through words. This is one of the reasons why 
the father-son relationship is the primary way in which the relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity are displayed for us, but it's not the only way. He is also called the Word of God, as we found already in John 1, very many verses related to him being the Word of God. When God the Father wants to relate himself, he cannot be seen, so he gives a relation of himself. He gives a revelation of himself through the Word. The only way that God God the Father can ever be known is through God the Son. So here, in the second part of verse 20, he says this, And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. What are the greater works than these? The greater works than these are the healing of a lame man who's had his legs not work for some 38 years. Now realize, that is not to trivialize the very nature of the miracle that's already happened. Imagine the thing that had to happen for a man who hasn't used his legs in 38 years to get up and carry his mat. In an instant, Jesus just looks at him. He doesn't say, abracadabra. He does no magic. He just says, take up your mat and walk. That man's legs, in a moment, had to be filled with muscle that they just didn't have. The the atrophy that would have happened on that man's legs over 38 years would have left them little more than bone. But in a moment, They filled with muscle. He was able to stand and rise and walk. It is a miracle akin to creation. He's creating those muscles in the legs of that man. And he says, that is a weaker miracle than what I'm going to do. We shouldn't miss the nature of that. It is a weaker miracle, even though it is still quite the miracle. And he says, I will give that to you so that you will marvel, that you will be amazed. But amazed at what? It's not the miracle itself. John, watching this, didn't go back and say, crazy stuff, man, that dude's legs plumped right up, right? He, he wasn't amazed at that. They didn't watch him walk on water and say, crazy things, man, he was walking on water. They came back and they said, they were amazed, not at the miracle itself, but they were amazed at the one who did the miracle. Mark. 39 through 41, the disciples are in a boat and there is a big storm raging about them. And these were fishermen who were unlikely to be scared by wind and waves. So this would have been a very, very bad storm that Jesus, by the way, was sleeping through. And finally, in verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, I didn't know storms calmed down that quickly. I'm amazed. No, what did they say? Who is this then? That even the wind and the waves and the sea obey him. When Jesus says, I will do greater miracles than this so that you will marvel, it's so that you will marvel at the one who has done the miracles. What are these greater works? that you would marvel at the nature of the Father and the Son. What are these greater works that he will do? In verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Indeed, the raising of the dead is a greater work. It's not just providing muscles to legs, but it's putting a beating heart and giving flesh life that did not have life. And you are right to think immediately when you hear of that, not just of our resurrection, which we will talk about, but also the resurrection of Lazarus from the tomb. It's clearly what he's pointing to. 
Lazarus is in the tomb. He delays in going to Lazarus so that he will make sure that Lazarus is dead and in the tomb. So dead is he that the sister warns him, do not open the cave because if you do, there is a stench in there because he has been dying and rotting in there. And Jesus says, no matter. In John 11, 41 through 43, what does Jesus say? Remember, they are supposed to marvel at the nature of the Father and the Son. And what does he say in John 11, 41 through 43? They took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus indeed did then come out. But notice the nature of this prayer. I said this so that they would know that you sent me. I, I say this prayer so that they would know to marvel, not just at a man who calls forward the dead, but that they would marvel at a man who does the will of his Father in heaven because you hear me. Indeed, you always hear me. He uses the Son to always demonstrate himself. He uses the Son always to reveal himself. That is the nature of the relationship between the Son and the Father. You cannot see the Father unless you see the Son. The Son always reveals the Father. And so, friends, there is a separate lesson that we need to learn here really, really well. When it comes to our salvation, please understand that you are not just to praise God for your salvation and all of the good that comes to you from it. You're just not. That is marveling at the plumping up of the legs of a lame man, which is interesting and worth studying and worth being amazed by. But if all you are concerned with is what has happened to you and you miss giving the glory and marveling at the God who would do that, you have totally missed the importance of these miracles. These miracles are made for us to marvel and wonder at a God who acts this way, a God who reveals himself through his son and then sends the spirit on us. So we can see the equality of the Father and the Son through the employment of the Son, and we can also see their equality through the esteem of the Son. We see the equality of God the Father and the Son through the esteem of the Son. Verses 22 and 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I think it would be pretty easy, and people have done this in the past, to hear all of this sending language, to hear that unidirectional sort of flow. The Father shows, the Father sends, the Father gives, and to think if he is the one who is originating all this, if he is the one who is giving, and if he is the one who is showing, if he is the one who is sending, then the Father must be greater than the Son. The Son is something of a servant wing of the Trinity. He always carries out what the Father wants. Indeed, there's something to that. The Son is never, ever the one who sends the Father. The Father never is spoken of as seeing the Son in this way. The Father never does the will of the Son. The Son never gives to the Father. It always works the other way. Does this mean he is worth less honor and glory? Certainly not. John says that the Father has given him all these things, but the Father gives him other things as well. And here he says he gives him 
judgment. The Father has given all judgment. The Father does no judging whatsoever, but he gives judgment over to the Son. That is, if you are going to stand before God on high, who are you standing before? You're standing before the Son. He has given all of the judgment of the world to the Son. You don't get to look at him and say, listen, I, I know you're just a servant. I need to speak to the big guy. You know, can I see your manager? Or you're just sort of like a day laborer here. You were sent, but I would really like to see the one who's in charge. And Jesus says, listen to me. There is no one else in charge. I am in charge. My Father has put me in charge so that you would honor me just like you honor the Father. The Father gives him judgment to show that he is equal in majesty and in glory and in honor with the Father himself. Listen, this idea of judgment is incredibly important. Why, why do human judges fail? Why do they make mistakes and, and not give right and good judgments? Certainly some of them are just wicked, immoral people. Their morality fails. They don't care about morals. They don't know the right morals. They don't care to uphold what is good and true. They simply do wrong. But the son is fully righteous in all that he does. He can never do wrong. Some human judges fail because they don't have knowledge. There, there's evidence that's kept from them. They have people lie to them, but they can't tell the difference between a lie and the truth. But the son, the son lacks none of that. He knows everything that has happened, everything that will happen, everything that is happening, and even everything that could have happened. He has all knowledge as the omnipotent son. He knows all things. And not only that, he knows the motives for all things. He knows your motives better than you do. So you can't claim innocence. He says, I know your heart. I know you are wicked. Sometimes they lack conviction. They might have morality and they might have knowledge, but they, they have no conviction to actually care about doing what is right. They know what is right to do, but they don't do it. They're too weak to carry it out. But the son is courageous in all things. He lacks no conviction to do what is right. Deuteronomy says the judge of the earth must do right. Some judges lack power. Judges sometimes are righteous, but they lack power. They, they cannot see every single case. You might have a good judge in Bay County. You might not have a good judge in Midland County. But that judge in Bay County can't be everywhere at once. He can't judge everything. Moses had to call the elders of Israel to come and help him judge. The son has no need of that. He has all power. He's not worn out. He doesn't grow weary of hearing people's cases. All judgment is given to him. Certainly, he doesn't lack authority. Some judges know what is right. They want to do right. They can do right, but they are limited because they don't get to write the laws. They only can judge based on the laws that are there. But the Son is the incarnate Word. He is the author of the law. He is the writer of the law. He is the signer of the law. He is the one who upholds the law in all things. Therefore, when God the Father gives all judgment to the Son, he is showing himself to be equal in all things to the Father. And so if you are going to honor the Son, you have to do it just as you do the Father and realize that that makes the Son equal to God. Listen to Isaiah 42, 6 through 8. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory, I will give to no other. God doesn't 
share honor with people. He doesn't, he doesn't allow mankind to take honor from him. He gives honor to the Son because the Son is God and equal with him. And the whole reason for him passing off judgment to the Son is not because he is not capable, but it is so that you would know that the Son has honor just as the Father has honor. And also, let's get rid of this cheesy notion that all roads lead to God. Listen, I understand why the world thinks that way, but as Christians, absolutely no one should ever say something so foolish. You only know the Father because the Son has revealed him. Well, we're not, we're, not even, we're not even to the point of saying the only way you can be reconciled to the Father is through the Son. We're, we're light years behind that. All we're saying is the only way you can know anything about God the Father is because he has revealed it in his Son. So not to honor the Son means you can't honor the Father because the Son is God. To say that there's another way to God, that is not God, but there's another way to God. He is God. You can't Skip God and say, there's another way to God. That's like saying, I'm not going to go to Midland, but I'm going to go to Midland. It doesn't work that way. To honor the Son is to honor the Father. To not honor the Son, to think that there's another way to get to God, is a denial, a frank and flat-out denial that he is God. And there's only one way to get to the Father, and that is through the Son. Friends, let us esteem the Son, for he is equal to the Father Let also see the equality of the Son because of the effect of the Son. The effect of the Son is no less than eternal life itself. This verse 24 talks about us getting a complete and total pass on judgment. Those who, he says, hear my word and believe in him who has sent me, they have eternal life. They don't come into judgment. They, they sort of like skim over the water of judgment. They don't actually go into it. They, they get to pass by. They get a get out of jail free card, so to speak. I, I, they don't have to appear before the court. The, the judge has given them a pass. Jesus Christ, as the judge of all the earth, says, you don't need to appear before me. You get to skip out on it. Some people want to think that they can for whatever reason, stand up to the scrutiny in their lives before the Son. That somehow they are, they are in the right and they'll be able to stand. That some think that they will be able to appeal before the throne for mercy on that day. And some people maybe think that they are good enough at hiding their sin that the Son won't know or something like that. Some friends, this is just foolishness. You will not be able to stand in a time of judgment before the Lord. Everyone is sinful. Everyone is deserving of God's wrath. And his wrath is hot against sin. It arouses his anger and his hate. And his hate is then upon, and his anger is then upon those who commit sin. There is no place to stand before God. You will not man yourself up enough to withstand the judgment seat of God. You won't woman yourself up enough either. You have nothing to stand before God with. To think that you will be able then to apply for the mercy of God is also wrong. God has appointed today as the day of salvation. God has appointed this moment as the time of salvation. You are not given another. You are not promised even this. 
2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul pleads with the Corinthians to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation, not at the judgment seat of Christ. Once you've gotten to judgment, you are already judged. God will see all that you have done. You can fool men. You can hide your sins and you can put on a pretty face when you go out and you can be kind to them all you want to. You can think that because people view you as good and they can't see your inner thoughts that somehow God cannot see all the deep, dark sin that lies within you that you know is there. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as a light with you. You, you can't shut off all the lights and hide it in that secret, deep, dark place because God sees everything. There is no darkness to him. There is no hiding from him. Friends, Jesus is giving you a really clear idea of how to pass through the judgment. While guilty, filthy, and wretched before God, you don't have to be judged by him. Listen to the words of Jesus. Believe the signs attested by the Father that he is indeed the Son of God. If you show up before the judgment seat of God, you are already condemned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus wasn't sent to condemn you. Don't think that. He's not judging you because he was sent to condemn you. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You are already condemned. You are already dead, but you don't have to be. Yeah, the weight of the judgment of God would crush you. But this is what Jesus has come to carry. He's come to carry your burden. All of the sin and the weight of that sin and the weight of judgment cannot be carried by you, but it can be carried by Christ. All of the shame and the guilt that should be on you, you cannot bear, but he can. All of the penalty that is due for your trespass, all of it, he will take care of. You can pass from death to life, trust and believe in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is God on high. And in this, we come back around where we began a week ago to the Sabbath, believe it or not. 
Remember, the observance of the Sabbath was twofold. First, they observed the Sabbath because they are to be like God and holy like him. I worked for six days, and on the seventh day, I rested. I ceased my working. So you are to be like me, and because God took away their slavery. You are no longer to do the work of slaves. So for six days, the curse was upon them. And even something of their slavery, they would work like Adam. With toil and sweat and pain and labor, they would work. They would gain from the ground. But the seventh day, the seventh day was a promise that God would take their burden. He would remove their labor from them, their toil, their pain. It is a promise. It's simply a shadow of the reality. It was never the real thing. The reality starts to come true as Christ heals most appropriately, on the Sabbath, slowly rolling back the effects of sin. Well, the man's legs didn't work. The eyes couldn't see. The hands couldn't grasp. They, they, they didn't have the ability to do the things that humans should do because of the effects of the fall. And so on the Sabbath, gloriously, Jesus begins to heal people. But even that is just a temporary reprieve. This man was going to walk for a while, but he would die. So there's an even greater sign, Jesus says. I will raise people from the dead. The reality of the sign is becoming more and more in form. There is a shadow, there's a promise, but then there's the, the hint of the promise coming true with these miraculous healings. And he says there's a greater sign. I will not just provide miraculous healings, but I will bring people back from the dead. But even that, even that is not the fullest of signs. That is not the reality that we seek because Lazarus would face death again. No, he says this. The reality, the fullness of it, is a passing out of death and into life. There is full life and eternal life. A life that knows nothing of the curse. A life that knows nothing of pain or labor or toil or strife. Friends, to understand that that offer is being made to you is to understand why, why Jesus can make it to you. Jesus can't make you that offer simply because he died. Jesus can make you that offer because he is God on high. Not only can he make it because of that, but we can trust in the promise. We can be sure of the promise because he is none other than the almighty God, the son of the father, as we would rightly confess, true God of true God, light of light, and judge of all the earth. Place your trust, your hope, and your love in Jesus Christ, for he is equal with God the Father in love and in authority in mercy and in glory and in power. The Son is equal with the Father in all ways, yet distinct in his person. That is a glorious truth upon which all of our salvation hangs. Let's pray. Father, glorify your Son today. Strengthen the faith of your people that they may believe without faltering Give them hope even in their sin and shame and allow us to pass from death to life. Do this, that all may honor your Son, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do this as Jesus is Lord to your glory. Make your glory shine upon us that we may behold our God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord for our good and for your glory. Amen.